episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is part nine of our ongoing series, Erotic 90s. I have seen one or two things in my life, but never, never anything like this. Last week, we talked about Drew Barrymore, Alicia Silverstone, and the branding of teenage girls as Lolitas in 90s popular culture. As Silverstone's run as the queen of MTV proved, television could be a powerful force in projecting images of teen sexuality. We've also talked in a previous episode about Beverly Hills 90210, which premiered on the Fox network in October 1990 and almost right away earned a reputation for storylines that dealt with sex in a more mature way than any TV show intended to be consumed by American teens ever had. In the first season alone, there were episodes about AIDS, teen parenthood, and date rape. Its two lead characters, 16-year-old twins Brandon and Brenda Walsh, both lost their virginity over the course of the show's first 22 episodes. For the male twin, the de-virginization happened in episode four without incident. But when Brenda had sex with bad boy Dylan McKay at the spring dance in the second to last episode of the season, the network and the show's creator, Darren Starr, were bombarded with criticism and hate mail. Starr was forced to begin the show's next season, which in a huge innovation, ran in the summer and hooked real teens who were bored on break, by showing that for Brenda, sex had consequences in the form of a pregnancy scare. She subsequently retreated from a sexual relationship with Dylan, at least until he had a horrible surfing accident and ended up recuperating in her family's living room. But that's a story for another day. The delicate dance that 90210 had to perform between its issue of the week style approach to events in its teen character sex lives and a moral puritanism expected by some viewers and a network beholden to advertisers was emblematic of where much of pop culture was in the early 1990s. It was a time of double standards and high hypocrisy. The spring dance episode that apparently offended so many viewers aired in the spring of 1991. This was the exact year that, according to an essay later written by TV producer Stephen Bochco, the bottom had dropped out of the network drama marketplace because cable networks had started running R-rated motion pictures. When Bochco then wrote a pilot with the intention of competing with those R-rated movies by including adult sexual situations, his show was shot down by the network's internal censorship body before it could even be made. Bochco would eventually get that show on ABC two years later. Between the spring of 1991, when Darren Starr was forced to try to reinstate Brenda Walsh's virginity, 
and the premiere of Bochco's NYPD Blue in the fall of 1993, premium cable exploded, in large part because it became a safe haven for both creators and consumers of adult content. It wasn't just the R-rated movies that Bochco cited that were luring viewers away from the networks. With their growth all but stalled aside from those feature film premieres, both HBO and Showtime had begun to invest heavily in original content that showed what they could do that the networks couldn't, most of which had to do with sex. The same demographic that had treated Last Tango in Paris like a date movie a generation earlier now wanted the same kind of thrills without leaving the house. While both the feature film industry and network TV were stumbling in their attempts to find a happy medium between enticing curious customers and not inspiring boycotts from Puritans, Pay Cable stepped in to fill the void. As Zalman King put it in the summer of 1992, Cable is almost freer than what you can see in the movies. There are no restrictions, no MPAA. You may remember Zalman King from Erotic 80s. He was the co-writer and producer of Nine and a Half Weeks, and later, the director of sex-centric features such as Two Moon Junction and Wild Orchid. As the X rating gave way to the NC-17, and the NC-17 almost immediately became synonymous with not commercial, Zalman King's Hollywood film career looked like it was doomed to second-tier European film festivals and the literal outskirts of American video stores. But King and his collaborator and wife, Patricia Louisiana Knopp, regrouped and found a new home on Showtime, for which they'd create a show that became the standard bearer for 90s after-hours cable TV. Red Shoe Diaries ran through the heart of the 90s from 1992 into 1997. Every episode told a different story built around a different fictional woman's confessions or fantasies usually involving sex with strangers, or at least without strings. It provided work for a bunch of stars, either on their way up, like Matt LeBlanc and Margaret Cho, or in post-80s career limbo, like Ali Sheedy and Christopher Atkins. A lot of Playboy and Penthouse models earned acting credits on Red Shoe Diaries. So did Udo Kier. But as a bookend to stories that featured more soft-focus nudity than had ever been seen in narrative television, every episode also featured an actor who was simultaneously becoming a superstar on mainstream TV, playing one half of a would-be couple who would come to be defined by how long they spent not having sex. Join us, won't you, for part nine of Erotic 90s, Red Shoe Diaries, and the evolution of sex on TV, from local cable access to Sex and the City. As with other innovations in technology and commerce, sex became a staple of cable television virtually as soon as it was invented. Wiring cities for cable caused enough of an infrastructure disruption that in the permitting process, those cities were able to get the cable companies to reserve some bandwidth for community use. Called public access, these were channels where average citizens could apply for airtime free of charge. You may be familiar with Wayne's World, which started as an SNL sketch about two metalheads doing a public access show out of their basement. Actual public access shows were often weirder and less entertaining. But there were some instant classics. In 1975, Screw Magazine launched a cable access show in Manhattan called Midnight Blue, hosted by their founder, Al Goldstein, who you may remember from the erotic 80s saga of Deep Throat. 
Midnight Blue was on the air more than once a week for over 25 years. Sometimes Goldstein would use it as an excuse to interview porn stars, edgy celebrities and artists, from Debbie Harry to Gilbert Gottfried to R. Crumb to Larry Flint. Here are about 25 seconds of those two pornographers in conversation. Be forewarned, it's predictably offensive. You know, you make me look like a member of NOW or some, some super feminist. I mean, I consider women pussies, but at least talking pussies. You don't even give them that credit. You're just a, just a hunk of meat you lay on the table and fuck. Do uh, you feel that that's what the average American male wants? You stand them on their head, they all look the same now. I was hoping you'd say that, Larry. <laughs> but Midnight Blue wasn't always like that. It often had a charm that wasn't exactly countercultural, but just generally fuck you in spirit. In fact, there was a regular rant segment called Fuck You. Episodes could also combine fake commercials, satirical skits, and joke montages, where, for instance, clips from the original Star Trek would be edited so that Goldstein could accuse Captain Kirk of eating his ice cream. Goldstein shot segments on location at strip and swingers clubs, but also at Bloomingdale's, where he couldn't get anyone to help him in the fitting room, got in an altercation with a manager, and then, once kicked out of the store for filming, summed up the experience like this. Oh, it's Al Goldstein. We had a wonderful tour of Bloomingdale's. We just saw their friendly welcomers. The greeters are directly from Iran. The Ayatollah's troop of tact. They actually think we need permission to videotape in there. They don't know we're a newspaper, we're a journalistic program, and we have a First Amendment. They think we need permission. They're full of shit. We would uh, love to tell you that if I owned Bloomingdale's, I'd be just as paranoid, too, and I would not want video cameras playing. It's the morons of the world of retailing. With Goldstein leading the way, adult content proliferated on Manhattan's public access channels. By the early 80s, you could see sex-themed content every night of the week, on shows ranging from blurbs, which was described by the New York Times as a half hour of films showing nude women in erotic poses, to men and films, which showed clips from gay porn, to The Robin Bird Show, which is still on. Hosted by the porn actress who appeared in the classic Debbie Does Dallas, Bird's guests were often adult film stars or exotic dancers, male and female, who would perform for the camera, sometimes with Bird. More punk and aesthetic than Goldstein, Bird was right alongside the Screw magazine publisher through numerous First Amendment battles. Beginning in the late 70s, Time Inc., which owned one of New York's two cable companies, wanted adult content on its public access channels to be scrambled as the default and to require customers to make a written request in order to view it. This was declared unconstitutional by several courts, and in 1983, a law passed by the New York State Legislature essentially did the reverse, requiring cable companies to sell devices that blocked such content to customers who didn't want it, while keeping it freely viewable by default. By that time, corporate America was already trying to replicate the success of shows like Goldstein and Birds on a larger scale. Playboy created their own cable network in 1982. This network's great innovation was selling nightly passes so that couples could pay for one or two date nights a month without running the risk that their kids would flip on a show like The Art of Oriental Massage on a Tuesday afternoon. A year later, HBO, which to that point had drawn subscribers primarily due to its exclusive deals to air boxing, comedy specials, and the cable premieres of Hollywood movies, got into the same game with two new shows. Eros America was a nonfiction series created by Sheila Nevins, who, as the head of documentary at HBO, would later greenlight everything from taxicab confessions to the Paradise Lost films to Spike Lee's Four Little Girls. 
Eros America, which consisted of episodes with titles like 69 Positions in 60 Seconds, first aired on HBO's sister network Cinemax, opening the door for a wave of late-night adult programming on that channel that would become known colloquially as Skinemax. But when Eros America proved to be a hit, executive Michael Fuchs moved the concept over to HBO, where in 1990 a similar Nevin show premiered, called Real Sex. Shot on film so its makers could position it as a documentary about sex and not pornography, Real Sex documented all kinds of real people having all kinds of sex. It was a staple of HBO's late-night programming for nearly two decades. HBO's other 1983 premiere of note was a thriller series called The Hitchhiker. Like Red Shoe Diaries, which it predated by almost a decade, The Hitchhiker was an anthology that featured sexual situations, but it was not highly regarded. HBO staffers jokingly called it Fuck a Stranger, Then Die. And yet, it ran for four seasons on HBO before moving to the USA Network. And by season three, episodes were being directed by the likes of Mike Hodges, Paul Verhoeven, and Roger Vadim. Hitchhiker gave way to another HBO anthology show called Strangers, which dispensed with most of the murder and focused on the brief encounters. The first episode starred Linda Fiorentino, who we'll talk about more later this season. This was not exactly a sex-positive hour of television. Stranger's idea of erotica is invariably grim and humorless, wrote Ken Tucker in Entertainment Weekly. He added, Every orgasm is an agonizing existential dilemma. The success of all of these shows on pay, cable, and free suggested that only the tip of the iceberg had been reached when it came to profiting off of the American public's desire to consume sex in the privacy of their own homes. There were still some regulations on content on cable, but just like with the movie rating system, the line defining obscenity was blurry and seemed to be constantly moving. The censorship is screwy. Lenny Aaron, producer of Midnight Blue, told Us Magazine in 1992. For example, Aaron explained, one year it's okay for a woman to touch her vagina, and the next year it's not. We can show still pictures of penetration, but they can't be moving. But this was indisputably further than the movies could go. Despite the theatrical success of some films that we've already talked about, it was becoming clear that movie theaters were not going to accommodate anything more hardcore than basic instinct, because movie theater patrons generally didn't want to watch that kind of thing in public. A lot of people didn't even want to be seen in public selecting hardcore material to take home. As industry analyst Larry Gerbrandt put it in 1992, People don't want to rent X-rated videotapes from the corner video store. There's an anonymity to pay TV that you can't get anywhere else. No one was better poised to take advantage of this climate than Zalman King. I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. The headline of the New York Times' obituary of Al Goldstein, who died in 2013, described him as a publisher who took the romance out of sex. Zalman King believed it was his mission to put the romance back in. And for that reason, he hated being referred to as a pornographer and refused to use the term softcore to describe his work. 
preferring eroticism. In the late 80s and early 90s, with the feature films he produced and directed, King had tried to make a case, on both a creative and an institutional level, that there should be a viable commercial space in between an R-rated film and pure pornography. As he described it, It got to a point where I got on a plane and went to New York and had a hearing, maybe three times on different films, and basically argued the fact that I didn't mind them having a separate rating from an R rating to an NC-17 rating. But it wasn't fair then to group pornography into the NC-17 rating. The concept, I believe, was that there should be ratings. But I thought that they were lumping the NC-17 rating in with the XXX rating, which meant this is pornography. It is a big difference because you are losing a tremendous amount of business because certain theater chains across the country unequivocally will not accept a film with an NC-17 rating. And I didn't think that was fair. Though much of King's work had been ridiculed by American critics, the huge profits his movies had made theatrically internationally, as well as the substantial home video proceeds stateside, had convinced him of two things. First, as his daughter Chloe, who was a writer and producer on Red Shoe Diaries, put it, there was an audience out there that was untapped, looking for profound themes about wanton lust and pain and loss and redemption that men had been exploring since the beginning of time. And second, in the U.S., that audience didn't want to watch this kind of thing in a crowd. You could reach some of them at the video store, but not everyone wanted to be recognized at their local video store renting a smutty movie. You could reach more people if you brought the smut directly to them. Ingeniously, Kang came up with a way of feeding the international audience for his movies and adapting his material for the U.S. audience at the same time. He convinced Showtime to give him half the funding to make four episodes, plus a standalone movie, which would serve as a pilot for a series in the U.S. and could be sold as its own film internationally. The international sales provided the rest of the budget King needed. The Red Shoe Diaries movie tells the story of Alex, a beautiful young woman engaged to an architect named Jake. They live together in Jake's downtown L.A. artist's loft, and are deliriously happy. But then, Alex develops a sexual obsession with a construction worker who moonlights as a shoe salesman. After he sells her a pair of red high heels, they begin an affair. Unable to deal with her guilt over betraying Jake, and equally unable to choose one man over another, Alex commits suicide. Earlier in the film, we heard a diary entry from a bereft Alex who feels she has no one to talk to and muses about placing an ad in search of other lonely women with secrets. Maybe I should run an ad in the paper. Woman out of control seeks clues to own dark pain and passion from other women's experiences. Willing to pay top dollar. Send diaries to Red Shoes, P.O. Box, whatever. The movie ends with Jake on the phone, placing an ad approximating Alex's idea as a solve for his own pain. Yeah, hi. hi I'd like to, uh, to take out an ad in your personal column. Yeah. Women, do you keep a diary? Have you been betrayed? Have you betrayed another? Man, 35, wounded and alone, recovering from loss of once-in-a-lifetime love, looking for reasons why, willing to pay top dollar for your experience. Please send diaries to Red Shoes, P.O. Box 7956-319, Canoga Park, California, 91309. All submissions, the address he gives in Canoga Park 
is kind of a Los Angelino in-joke. Jake picks up his mail in San Pedro, down by the docks, about an hour away from Canoga Park, which is where Zalman King's production company was based. Canoga Park is deep, deep in the San Fernando Valley, which by 1992 was already known to those in the know as the local capital of the adult film industry. Zalman King had originally cast Sharon Stone as Alex, but she dropped out when she got the role in Basic Instinct. Instead, the part went to Bridget Bacco, a little-known Canadian actress in her early 20s, who had a small role in the Martin Scorsese segment of New York Stories. Bacco had auditioned for the lead in Wild Orchid and had become incensed at the audition when Nikki Rourke slapped her on the ass. Zalman King had remembered her reaction, and when Stone dropped out, Bacco was his first call. The actor cast as Jake was also relatively unknown, although he would not remain that way for long. David Duchovny had played a cross-dressing FBI agent on Twin Peaks and one of the backstabbing co-workers in Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead and a handful of other roles, but he was not in a position to turn work down. As he later explained, Ultimately, I could have told myself many things, but I needed a job. I wasn't being offered a bunch of stuff. After making the Red Shoe Diaries movie and shooting the first season of the series, Duchovny was cast in The X-Files, but he had already established a bond with Zalman, who he'd come to see as a father figure. While shooting X-Files in Vancouver, he'd fly down to LA for a weekend and shoot six intros and outros, called wraparounds, at a time. As the series progressed, his intros got a lot shorter and sometimes recycled material, but Duchovny was involved with Red Shoe Diaries to the end. Even when doing press for X-Files, he didn't shy away from his involvement in Showtime smut. I'm the conduit through which America views the soft underbelly of women's erotic desires, he told Entertainment Weekly in 1995, adding, Some say it was the part I was born to play. A typical episode of Red Shoe Diaries, and there were 66 of them over five seasons, begins with Jake going to his post office box, hidden in a roadside diner, to find a new letter. Usually, he walks around the train tracks or the docks at San Pedro, reading the letter aloud to his dog, Stella. Eventually, the voice of the woman writing takes over as we begin to watch a dramatization of the story. Here's a clip from the beginning of episode two, which is titled, Double Dare. Very neat, Stella. Business line. Your red shoes. You want to know my secret? It's odd. When I read your ad, I'd been trying unsuccessfully to work up the nerve to tell my husband. Maybe by telling you, it might help me understand. Maybe that's what I'm looking for after all, understanding. To do the right thing. After you read the enclosed, you tell me. Was it adultery? Was it wrong? October 24th, another beautiful sunny day or so they told me in the elevator. By the time I noticed, it was already a dark, balmy evening. Still no answer in the DX account. Assholes. I've got another hour or two in Kawagar and Spadora. Jesus, Japanese lawnmowers, Italian socks, Indian deodorant, advertising. Call me a masochist, but I love it. I noticed this man in the window of the building that faces mine. He was striking, mysterious-looking, brooding, almost cruel. I couldn't take my eyes off him. I guess I was staring, and he caught me. His smile was... I don't know how to describe it, one of those grins that just sort of creeps up on the side of a man's face. I don't know why, but only men can do that. 
If there was an Olympic event for smiling, this guy would get the gold. All the hallmarks of Red Shoe Diaries are here. Jake is melancholic and somnambulant. The only respite from his grief has walks with Stella and has letters from high-powered career women who are desperate to give up some control to a man who they are not married to. He often has thoughts on penmanship, but he doesn't judge these women for their actions or desires. As this particular episode plays out, we watch this particular woman and the businessman across the way flirt, first through handwritten signs, then through faxes, then they start stripping. All of this fluffs her up so that she can really let loose at home with her boho-bearded husband. And then the woman and the stranger finally meet. Though he looks like a Macy's menswear ad version of Kevin Costner, he speaks in a weird mid-Atlantic accent, and she decides she likes him better as a fantasy than as a reality. At the end of the episode, we hear the end of her letter while we watch her imagining showering with this guy, followed by Jake's philosophical commentary, delivered once again to Stella the dog. The question that still haunts me is that even though we never really touched, was it cheating on Sam? I think it was. So, what do you think, Stella? Looks like Diana's really crazy about her husband. It makes sense to me. Question is, once you're married, do you put your sense of desire on hold? Does it automatically shut down? I don't think so. It's the sense of adventure. Nobody wants to give that up. The real question is, where do you draw the line between window shopping and putting down your credit card. Hell of a world, Stella. Hell of a world. Zaman King's intention with Red Shoe Diaries was to make a show that took women's sexual fantasies seriously with the idea that male viewers would come along for the ride. As King put it, The entire series was directed at women. Men watch it because it's sexy, but consistently it is about relationships and it is about women struggling with their identity and having romance. I don't know why, but I do try to speak to women. I think maybe I do this because there's very little for them in terms of cinema and in terms of this high romance. An episode like Double Dare absolutely takes a woman's struggles with her identity and her longing for a kind of romance that has dulled in her marriage seriously. But that doesn't mean it's not also kind of misogynist. That this career woman whose husband thinks she's working late is actually in her office taking her top off for a stranger undercuts the idea that a woman could have any serious reason for actually working long hours. And in this episode and most other Red Shoe Diaries episodes, even if the fantasy plays out from the woman's point of view, what she's fantasizing about is a man, and a very specific type of man. A man with whom she can play games involving submission, coercion, and risk. In the same interview in which King talked about wanting to tap into female fantasies of high romance, he also talked about his vision of a kind of masculinity that he believed played into those fantasies. The characters I write are basically written to inspire women to become involved with them. It's like they found the key to the lock. Unfortunately, I don't know how to say this in a gentle way. There are keys to locks, if you want to play certain cards, even with very beautiful women. I have recorded endless interviews with pimps talking about their strategy in terms of manipulation of women, but it's a terrible thing to learn because you don't want to have a relationship with women like that. I'm not promoting it, but I explore it because it interests me. King's ambivalence about the male and female archetypes as work explored 
is evident in the arc given to Duchovny's Jake in Red Shoe Diaries. Red Shoe Diaries, the movie, suggests that while Jake may be the perfect guy on paper, super cute, smart, with a good job, and incredibly loving and faithful, he is not the kind of guy women fantasize about. Obviously, saying that anything applies to all men or all women is pretty stupid. And personally, there are no other actors on Red Shoe Diaries who I find more attractive than David Duchovny. He's so clearly a star, and having him play the sad sack goes a long way towards legitimizing Red Shoe Diaries' attempts at tragedy. About 30 minutes before the end of the movie, Jake, accompanied by Stella, of course, discovers Alex's corpse in the bathtub. Alex's diary leads him to track down the shoe salesman, Tom, who Jake pretends to befriend. At a bar, Jake bets Tom $1,000 that he can beat him in a game of one-on-one basketball. So they go back to Jake's loft with a crew of four drunk adult women who were all former cheerleaders, don't ask. And the ensuing scene is kind of incredible. And I don't say this in an ironic way. It legitimately feels on par with what David Lynch was doing around the same time in terms of digging into the bedrock of all-American sexuality with the drill on full blast. First of all, Jake's chosen basketball court is inside his living room. The women have opened multiple bottles of champagne and have produced feather dusters to use as pom-poms. Everyone is wasted. While the girls cheer and dance and turn cartwheels and fall all over themselves giggling, and Stella the dog runs underfoot, Tom and Jake play basketball. Tom still thinks at first that this is a goof, a bar bet, an interesting way to spend a weeknight and nothing more. He works up enough of a sweat that he has to take his shirt off. And shortly after that, Jake elbows him in the face. This is when the scene takes a turn from delightfully strange to ominously batshit. Duchovny does everything in this extended scene. He dunks, he wrestles, he wisecracks, he weeps. He takes a sunker punch. He insists one of the women use his t-shirt to clean up spilled champagne instead of her own pantyhose. And finally, he throws the red shoes at the red shoe salesman and says, Put them on, bitch. And he does most of this without a shirt on. You can rent this movie online for $2.99, and if you don't want to watch the whole thing, or if you start at the beginning and find its general wavelength to be cringe, skip to about 75 minutes in and watch from the moment Tom and Jake see each other in the bar and all the way to the end. There are a lot of reasons to appreciate Red Shoe Diaries and also reasons to dismiss it, and your mileage, of course, will vary. But I think the last 25 minutes or so of the pilot movie are truly astonishing. In the way that it tackles grief and wounded masculinity equally and head-on with an aesthetic that is somehow both raw and baroque, it's truly like nothing else I've ever seen. I find myself whipping back and forth between laughing at it and feeling punched in the gut by it. And above all, it's pretty interesting in terms of filmmaking. At the end of the film, when Jake places the ad that will instigate every episode of the TV show, if you've been engaged in the last act of the movie, it's quite the cliffhanger. And yet, that last act is not really representative of what the show to come would be like. The point of Red Shoe Diaries was not to analyze fragile masculinity. The point was to give women an opportunity to fantasize about finely tuned power dynamics in which only their own feelings really mattered. But King and crew clearly understood that they had something special in Duchovny's performance as Jake, 
And while, for many reasons, they couldn't make the show entirely about him, they did make one more episode in the first season, centering their narrator's story. In his extremely negative review of the pilot movie, the LA Times' Chris Willman recognized Duchovny from Twin Peaks and snarked, Let's hope he gets a letter from Laura Palmer, who can maybe sick Demon Bob on him. As if playfully responding to that bad review, King cast the actress who played Laura Palmer, Cheryl Lee, in the only episode of the series to revisit Jake's story. It was titled Jake's Story, and it takes place months after the end of the movie. Jake is still grieving and hasn't become involved with another woman. At the diner where he picks up his mail, he's aggressively hit on by a blonde in a leather jacket played by Lee. He tries to decline her advances, but he ends up tagging along with her on an erotic photo shoot, which takes place in a trailer home. Lee's character takes pictures while a tattooed guy makes out with and holds a knife to the nipple of his very young, naked girlfriend. The girlfriend is played by Angela Cornell, who would later make porn under the name Juliet Carrollton. In this Red Shoe Diaries episode, we see more of this actress's body than any Hollywood movie at the time would allow, but it looks nothing like porn of the time, largely because Cornell is not performing over-the-top ecstasy. It's a little erotic, but also pretty uncomfortable. And there are cutaways to Jake wincing. And yet, watching this photo shoot breaks down Jake's resolve to remain celibate in his grief. On the drive home, a lightning storm begins. Laura Palmer pulls over and straddles Jake in the passenger seat. Later, after they squeak through a dangerous situation with a gun-toting burglar, he throws her down in the street and takes her from behind, pulling her hair and pulling up her dress so that we see flashes of her flesh and absolutely none of his. By this point, we've seen him follow her home, even after she's refused to give him her phone number. Soon, we learn that she secretly followed him and photographed him. And then we learn she's married to a rich philanthropist. In the end, Though he's grateful for the experience, Jake has been betrayed by another woman he trusted. For the rest of the series, he goes back to the margins, his only companion, Stella. I think Jake's story is the most successful standalone episode of Red Shoe Diaries in terms of storytelling and emotion, and even integration of its sex scenes into the story. Yet, it is totally anomalous within the series and seems to go against King and Knopf's stated mission. They were so evangelic about making erotica for women that Premier Magazine referred to it as a manifesto and Time Magazine rolled their eyes at Red Shoes for begetting a genre of, quote, sex goddesses Gloria Steinem can love. And yet... Jake's story points to the problem with claiming you're interested in female fantasies, but only pushing the boundaries in terms of female nudity. It is my educated guess that a decent percentage of the straight female audience that King and Knopp claimed to court would have welcomed seeing more of young David Duchovny's body. A guess borne out by the fact that when he wore a tiny red Speedo in a 1994 episode of The X-Files, the internet, then in its infancy as a place to overanalyze television shows, went insane. A network show, The X-Files had 17 million viewers an episode, meaning something like 10 times as many people could look at Duchovny's all but naked body in prime time, then saw him simulate sex fully clothed on Showtime. Because we don't see equal opportunity nudity, and because it's Jake's experience that's centered, this whole episode feels like a male fantasy. 
a fantasy about a mysterious woman selecting a man for erotic adventure, the fantasy of a regular Joe cuckolding a member of the 1%. I don't have a problem with that. As I said, this is a good episode of TV. Ideally, a show like this could portray a wide variety of fantasies, gendered or otherwise. But its stated intent was to appeal to female fantasies. And in practice, an awful lot of the episodes involved uptight working women learning to let go of their inhibitions and submit to a man. Surely, that was the fantasy of some women. But it also feels really closely aligned with the playboy sensibility, which suggested that women were only play-acting power in the workplace, and that they really wanted to revert back to pre-feminism roles with men in control. What was Red Shoe Diaries like as a workplace for women? Bridget Bacco, who played Jake's doomed fiancé in the pilot movie, suggested that King's technique with actors still had vestiges of nine and a half weeks, on which Kim Basinger had complained of being forced to really live the part she played. Bacco said of Zalman, quote, His idea to get an actress to cry in a role was to devastate her and berate her. I was trained, and I didn't need him to do that. Bacco also described King as unhinged, a screamer who subjected everyone on set to his tantrums and insane rage. And yet, Bacco added, the fascinating thing was he was a tyrant on set and then I'd get invited on the weekend to a barbecue with his amazing wife and daughters. He adored and respected these women. He was a totally different person around his family of strong women. As production on Red Shoe Diaries continued on past Baco's involvement in the movie, it increasingly became a family affair. Chloe King, one of Zalman's two adult daughters, became a writer and producer on the show. He never failed to share credit with his key collaborator, his wife, Pat, and women who were not related to Zalman King had positive things to say about working on Red Shoe Diaries behind the scenes. He hired a lesbian writer, Elise Dehane, and let her realize her dream of telling the story of a prison romance between two women. At Chloe's urging, Zalman hired director Lizzie Borden, and let her shoot on location in Juarez, Mexico. This was in 1996, after Borden had had two films taken away from her and recut, including Love Crimes, which we talked about in the Sean Young section of Erotic 80s. Borden recalled later that her experience on Red Shoe Diaries allowed her more freedom to approach sexuality the way she wanted to. Quote, I like that this was about women's fantasy. There was a lot of nudity, but a lot of it was expression, not exploitative. She was the one controlling the action. She was the one who was pushing the plot forward. She had agency. I wouldn't have used the term feminist back then, but it was. Another key way in which Zalman King was progressive was in his approach to filmed sex. As we discuss in Erotic 80s, Wild Orchid, which King directed, became notorious for rumors that Mickey Rourke had essentially directed the movie's climactic sex scene by coaxing his co-star and real-life girlfriend into doing it for real on camera. Rumors that, in the press, King didn't exactly deny. But on Red Shoe Diaries, he left no opening for an actor to take such liberties. Now, he said, I write everything I'm going to do almost shot for shot into the screenplay so that the actor or actress knows exactly what my intentions are. I don't want to be on a set and have to seduce someone into doing something they will regret later. He also pioneered the use of what we would now call intimacy coordinators outsourcing the design and direction of sex scenes to a choreographer. King told Premier Magazine, I approach it as you would a dance. Premier's profile of King and Knopp and the filmmaking collective they were operating out of a warehouse deep in the San Fernando Valley 
used numbers, attesting to the commercial success of their work on home video and overseas, to defend Zalman and crew from their haters. And they had a lot of haters. Entertainment Weekly gave the Red Shoe Diaries pilot a grade of D+. For sheer sustained kookiness, Diaries is more entertaining than most sexy TV shows, but its insidious, numbing dumbness seems to demand some sort of protection. A new product, perhaps. A brain condom. It's not surprising that Entertainment Weekly circa 1992 would write off a show about female desire as stupid. Most of what was geared towards women was condescended to by critics at this time. What's interesting about this review is that it suggests that Red Shoe Diaries anticipates a recent trend, which Kyle Sheka coined in The New Yorker as ambient television, defined as, quote, like gentle new age soundscapes, soothing, slow, and relatively monotonous, the dramatic moments too predetermined to really be dramatic. Emily in Paris is the hook of Sheka's piece, but he notes that the genre really flourishes in Netflix lifestyle reality shows like Dream Home Makeover. Red Shoe Diaries was frequently accused of looking too much like a catalog or commercial for yuppie consumerism and of repeating the same formula from episode to episode. Variety complained that the franchise was marked by both the gloss of a commercial for an overly ambitious hairspray and advanced monotony. I'd argue that these are all features rather than bugs. Red Shoe Diaries is perfect before bed viewing, whether you're using it as erotic inspiration or not, because it's really easy to look at, easy to listen to, and it never really surprises you. Watching it makes you feel like you're asleep already, in the best way. Red Shoe Diaries was an immediate success for Showtime. As soon as the first batch of episodes aired, they ordered more. Perceived as the also-ran premium cable network behind HBO, Red Shoe Diaries boosted Showtime's subscriber numbers. But the network didn't really seem to know how to capitalize on the success of Red Shoe Diaries, other than try to copy it. After the break, how Red Shoe Diaries changed TV over the course of the rest of the 1990s. With Red Shoe Diaries a success, imitators came fast. The June 1993 issue of Playboy contained a nude spread of actress Barbara Allen Woods, headlined, All About Eden. This was cross-promotional spawn con for an upcoming Playboy TV original production called Eden. Produced by one of the creators of Knott's Landing, Eden was a nighttime soap in that tradition. The protagonist was blonde and named Eve. The antagonist, described by Playboy as a quintessential bad girl, was brunette and named Randy. There was a battle over real estate, special guest stars, exotic locales, and also explicit nudity that could be easily excised for broadcast reruns. In fact, Edited reruns were part of its design. Uncut episodes would premiere on Playboy TV before airing sans graphic sexuality on the USA Network. The Playboy version, which one exec there described as deserving of somewhere between an R and an NC-17 rating, would lose what USA's David Kennan described as full frontal nudity, some sexuality, anything too overt which is usually a simulated thing anyway, what we are doing is basically taking it from an R to a PG. It wasn't just cable that was trying to sell sex, or at least the illusion of it. Even before Red Shoe Diaries premiered, CBS had been trying to promote their necessarily PG content as R, 
via a programming block called Crime Time After Prime Time, which filled the post-local news 11.30 slot for two years after CBS canceled the Pat Sajak show and before they hired David Letterman away from NBC. The best-remembered show that aired in this block was Silk Stockings, a cop procedural starring future Melrose Place staple Rob Estes, that was sort of Miami Vice meets SVU. When CBS gave up on Crime Time after Prime Time, Silk Stockings moved to the USA Network, where it ran for the rest of the decade, and where, I can tell you, it was heavily promoted during afternoon reruns of the sitcom Wings. Silk Stockings marketing made it seem like red shoe cops, but in practice, it was about as explicit as Baywatch, which also started on a network, debuted in syndication in 1991, and ran for the rest of the decade. Shows like Silk Stockings and Baywatch allowed for an ambiance of sex on TV during primetime and earlier, but you still had to go to the pay channels to see anything like real nudity. That began to change in the fall of 1993 when Stephen Bochco finally got his sexually mature police procedural on the air. The first episode of NYPD Blue featured a sex scene between cops played by David Caruso and Amy Brenneman. Though it was tastefully filmed and cleared by network standards and practices, it was widely perceived as the most daring love scene on network primetime TV to that point. Bochco later said, that in order to make sure they could pull it off, he and then-ABC president Bob Iger, quote, sat in his office like two little boys, drawing dirty pictures and asking, how much of this can you see? How much of that? In the end, ABC asked him to trim 15 seconds from the pilot's sex scene, 15 seconds being longer than most glimpses of sex had lasted in primetime previously. Bochco told the media that he had every actor on his show sign a contract stipulating that they may be required to perform on-camera nudity. But with the FCC on patrol, this still wasn't real competition for what Red Shoe Diaries was doing. If you wanted to see a career woman by day have beautifully filmed sex on a motorcycle by night, her nipples artfully lit by a street lamp while her male partner remained in darkness, followed by wistful voiceover, Red Shoe Diaries was still the gold standard. And Showtime was still the leader of their market, despite copycat shows on HBO and Cinemax. Instead of using the success of Red Shoe Diaries to launch other types of programming, Showtime doubled down, launching a block called Showtime After Hours, which consisted of other shows milking the same formula. The producers of Red Shoe Diaries believed the network milked that formula to death, and that by the time they ended their run in 1997, the audience had been exhausted. But it seems clear that the audience had evolved and had been fed more variety elsewhere. In 1996, as Showtime was gearing up to air the final Red Shoe Diaries season, Internet porn exploded, thanks to the Pamela Anderson and Tommy Lee sex tape. And the phenomenal success of NYPD Blue encouraged other networks to produce more provocative primetime content. Dawson's Creek took Beverly Hills 90210 a step further by showing a male student lose his virginity to his female teacher and portraying the scenario as a fun, sexy time rather than criminal. Nearly every episode of the first couple of seasons of the Fox dramedy, Ally McBeal, which debuted in 1997, dealt with sexual harassment, sexual fetishes, and or its title character's sex life. In its season three premiere in the fall of 1999, Ali has anonymous sex in a car wash with the guy who works at the car wash. And then later in the episode, somehow ends up a bridesmaid at the car wash guy's wedding 
and has to decide whether or not to tell the bride that she just fucked her future husband. The whole episode has Red Shoe vibes, but in the container of primetime TV comedy on the Fox network in the late 90s, what begins as the realization of a female fantasy turns into bone-chilling, anti-sex, misogynist nightmare. With Red Shoes ending, the best Showtime could do in terms of manufacturing a new buzzy hit was Stargate SG-1. While they were launching that cult franchise, HBO was launching Sex and the City, which brought the kinds of stories Red Shoe Diaries told about sexually liberated career women into some kind of recognizable reality and upped the nudity. To many, Red Shoe Diaries was at best a guilty pleasure and at worst a punchline. But it had one unlikely point of influence. After the show ended in 1997, tapes were requested by none other than Stanley Kubrick. And according to multiple sources, when Kubrick began the long, arduous process of making Eyes Wide Shut, he began calling Zalman King on a nightly basis to talk shop. As Elise Stane, a writer on Red Shoes, remembered, Kubrick loved how the men and women were portrayed in Zalman's work. He was calling to discuss how they shot women, how they cast women. He wanted to know how one approaches erotica as a filmmaker. Without giving Red Shoe Diaries or any of Zalman King's work too much credit, you can see how Kubrick's film, which I think is a masterpiece, is in dialogue with this body of work about the angst of squaring away sexual fantasies with reality. Although, if there's any Zalman King joint that seems directly influential on Eyes Wide Shut, it's the masked ball scene in Wild Orchid. As we'll discuss at the end of this season, Eyes Wide Shut was the peak of something, and it was also the end of a few things. Similarly, if you want to watch Red Shoe Diaries, the show that apparently influenced it, you won't find it on the streaming platforms of Showtime or its corporate sister, Paramount+. Plus. Red Shoes used to be available on Hulu, and then Hulu's corporate parent decided it was too racy. And this was pre-Disney. You can't find real sex on HBO Max either. HBO removed all adult content from its on-demand services years before the current purge of content. So there is at least one thing Taxi Cab Confessions and Looney Tunes have in common. There are some episodes of Red Shoe Diaries available for streaming free on Tubi with ads, and you can buy the first season on Prime Video. But I couldn't find episodes that I wanted to see from the fourth and fifth seasons at all. When it comes to a lot of the things I've mentioned in this episode, if you want to watch this stuff today, you have to really hunt for it. And you might even have to break the law. These works that represented the mainstreaming of what was once forbidden are now, once again, underground. Don't let anyone tell you that history doesn't repeat itself. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. The show is written, produced, and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. This season is edited and mixed by Evan Viola. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our social media assistant is Brendan Whalen. And our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod, and we're on Facebook and Instagram, too. And if you go to our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com, you can find show notes for this and every other episode, 
which include lists of our sources and much more. At the website, you can also find merch like hats, t-shirts, and our special limited edition Dead Blondes coloring book. At patreon.com slash Karina Longworth, you can support the podcast, get lots of bonus You Must Remember This content, including scripts or transcripts of our full archive, and some glimpses into other aspects of my life. Proceeds from Patreon go to help pay all the people who work on the show named above. Finally, subscribing or rating and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts can really help other people find it. So if you want to spread the word, that's a great way to do it. We'll be back next week with an all-new tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night. Good night.